And the first one is from Exodus chapter 20. So if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, we're in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 7. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And our second reading is from Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. We're starting a new sermon series this evening, looking at what it means to celebrate God, to celebrate all that God is. Before doing that, just have a think for a moment and maybe just turn in twos and threes. What was the last or, or, or the, the most memorable big celebration that you have attended? What was the, 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 the last or the, the most uh, memorable, maybe, celebration? It doesn't matter if it was Christian or not. What, what was it that you celebrated? Maybe it was a big party of some sort, whatever it was. What was it? Just, 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 uh, just turn and share on each other. Okay, so probably a whole variety of, of, of different things. But the celebrations that we go to, but think for a moment of some of the things that surround a celebration. You've, you've gone to, and it may be a wedding, it may be um, a big birthday party, whatever it might be, but there are things that will have happened around that celebration. First of all, there is something or someone to be celebrated. You don't sort of celebrate into thin air, you meet to celebrate. And um, a few years ago, I was in Bethlehem on a study tour, and our tour group got invited to a huge party um, which was from a day center for the elderly. In the evening, we went into this party, and um, during it, the, the oldest man there and the oldest woman there were invited up onto the dance floor. They came onto the dance floor. Their lives were lauded by the MC in a rap, and um, they were then each given a rose each, and they were expected to lead the dancing. Yes, with their walking sticks as well, but it was great. And then we all joined in afterwards, but we were there to celebrate these two people in this day center, and there was a cause to be celebrated. Also, when we go to a celebration, usually somebody will have issued invitations for us to attend. 
And um, those invitations may be very, uh, very fine bits of card with maybe a silver writing on or gold writing on or so on. I say, please come to our wedding, please come to um, our child's baptism, please come to whatever it might be. Maybe that bit of card or it may just simply be a WhatsApp message, which sounds slightly less sort of, it's more ephemeral, isn't it, that way, I think, really. But we have an invitation that is issued to come and celebrate. And then also there is a togetherness about the celebration. Celebrations bring us together. Now I know there are wedding ceremonies that take place and when the wedding feast takes place there's that part of the family that's not talking to that part of the family. Um, but by and large when we go to a big celebration it brings people together. You meet people you haven't seen for a long time perhaps. Um, you meet members of, of distant cousins who've come over from Australia or wherever it might be to be there. It brings us together. Now it's true that at my age I think like some others maybe we find ourselves saying we only seem to meet at weddings and funerals now. But there is something about a celebration which brings us together from different backgrounds and sometimes we'll be there with total strangers as well who we've never known. And um, I was at one celebration and commemoration recently where I was actually being asked to match up the two parts of a family who didn't know each other and uh, saying, which branch of the family do they belong to over there? I had nothing at all to do with the families at all, but because I was the vicar who was there, I was expected to know. There's that togetherness about the celebration. And the other thing is that goes on at a celebration like that usually is that the focus of the celebration is not on the guests who've been invited. Yes, there may be two honor guests on which there is... Um, that focus. But it's not on those who have been invited. They're there as guests to celebrate somebody else. In Bethlehem, that focus was on the two oldest members. It wasn't on our English tour group who happened to be there. I'm not sure whether the victory parade's taken place in Liverpool yet, but the focus is going to be on the trophy. It's not going to be on the people lining the streets. And then a celebration can be a way of showing homage or respect or reverence to the person being celebrated. We're going to see that this coming week in the D-Day celebrations as a memory of those who gave their lives of showing homage to those who are still alive. I was reading the testament today of two in their 90s who will be going over on the ferry to, to, to take part in those commemorations this week in Normandy. And then also, when we have a celebration, there are often instructions to follow. Um, at the simplest, it might be, please be at St. Agatha's Church at 10 o'clock, 4, or whatever it might be. That's a bit early for a wedding, actually. Any of you thinking, well, not 10 o'clock, a bit later in the day. Um, but we have those instructions. Sometimes it will give us the dress code, and we can feel very awkward if we turn up not having followed the dress code. I remember talking with, with someone on one occasion of three, three guys who believed they were going, been invited to a fancy dress party, so turned up in fancy dress, only to find everybody else was there in elegant evening wear. <laughs> so there are instructions that come with that invitation to celebrate. Now I said today we're going to start a new sermon series looking at what it means to celebrate God, to worship God. 
And I think all the things we just noted that go on around our human celebrations are also there in our call to worship and to celebrate God. And I'm going to look at those in a minute. So first of all, there is someone to be celebrated. Not for nothing does the Bible begin, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And God calls us to celebrate and to worship. We're going to, over the course of this series, look at what it means to worship and to celebrate by looking at God's character. You've got some of the characteristics of God listed on here. The God who is peace, the God who's strong, who's powerful, who's powerful, faithful, who's savior, who's comforter, who's loving, who's holy, who's compassionate, who's hope, who's the rescuer, who's light, who's just, who's father, who's redeemer, who's mighty. And if you look on the board there, there are even more attributes that our 930 congregation wrote this morning. Go and have a look at those afterwards to remind yourself of the sheer enormity of God. I think one of the, one of the comments on there, it, it's got buried in some of that, was he's beyond our scope was, the, was one, one of the illustrations, the, the words that were given to us this morning as we celebrated God at that stage. We're going to won't look at all of those, but we'll look at some of them and say, what does it mean to celebrate the God who gives the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to celebrate God who is Redeemer? What does it mean to celebrate God who is reconciler, God who is king, God who is judge? What does it mean to worship God like that in our words and in our lives? See, not only is God someone to be celebrated, he calls for our celebrations to be focused solely on him. At the start of that reading this evening, you shall have no other gods before me. In our human celebrations, we move on from one wedding to another or from one party to another, one celebration to another with a different focus for that celebration. God says when we celebrate him, he is the sole focus. He is the sole focus for the whole of our living. We're to worship him and to worship him alone. And yet we know it's not like that, don't we? We know that we, we, we take our eyes away from the one who we should be worshipping and we go in other directions. Paul's very clear about that at the beginning of Romans. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, he wrote, against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. He says, although they knew God, his eternal plan and divine nature, all of these things we've got listed here, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, birds and animals and reptiles. We wandered astray. And Paul's critique there reminds us of that second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath. God demands our total allegiance, our total worship. And that second command goes on to say something which perhaps sounds strange in our ears because of the culture in which we live. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. And we tend to fight away and back off, don't we, from jealousy because we see it as being something which brings so much harm and damage. 
Is this God being petty when he says, I'm a jealous God? Is this God saying, I want you all to myself? Well, he is saying that, actually. But he's doing it in a way because he is God. And there's a righteous jealousy there. Think of a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. If there's a third party that tries to come in between the husband and the wife, we know there's a jealous love that will be exercised to root out the intruder and to restore the relationship. That's the sort of jealousy that God is asking for here. He's jealous for his name, he's jealous for his character, and he's jealous for our love because he loves us so much that he wants us to worship him alone. And so that's a real challenge to us when we make things other than God, the things that we worship. Whatever that might be, our money, our power, sex, selfishness, the list is endless, isn't it? The things we were putting in place before we worship God. God calls for our total and utter allegiance. But the wonderful news is that God is also the one who saves and redeems. So even when we wander from that true allegiance to him, he still sits there and longs to draw us back. If you want to understand that, read the Old Testament. Time and again, God's people wander from him, and he calls them back. And there's this incredible plea in the middle of the book of Hosea, one of the prophets, where God is weeping over his people who've wandered away from him and says, how can I give you up? How can I let you go? Because I love you with a jealous love, and I expect that same love and allegiance in return. Our worship of God is initiated by God. God is the one who issues us the invitation. We've gone back just before our reading this evening in Exodus 19. We would have seen these words. You yourselves, God says to the people, have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you out on eagles' wings, how I rescued you, how I redeemed you from Egypt and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasure possession. Though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's a beautiful words, aren't they? But there's an invitation in there. God doesn't say this is going to happen. He says, if you follow my covenant, if you enter into covenant with me, if you worship me, if you honor me as I am as your God, this is the outcome of it. I'm going to bring you into being a wonderful people who can celebrate all that I've done for you. And you've got evidence of that because I have brought you out of Egypt already. God has called that invitation. But even that call to worship is based on the nature and character of God and his initiative. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Therefore, you are to have no other gods before me. Because I have redeemed you, because I have loved you, because I have saved you, because I am making you my people, I want you to give me total allegiance to celebrate me and me alone. And Paul picks up the same idea in that reading from the New Testament this evening as well. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that God has done to love you and to redeem you and to rescue you, 
urge, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In view of God's mercy, or even the therefore at the beginning of that sentence, what's it referring to? Well, it's the whole of chapters 1 to 11 of Romans. It starts with that devastating critique about those who have gone away, who have made idols, who have worshipped something other than God. It works its way through talking about the way in which the Lord Jesus God has rescued us and brought us safe into his presence. It speaks about the giving of the Spirit, and it speaks about the hope of the future. That's Romans in a sentence. You'll need to read the whole of the, the epistle to get the full gist of what's there. Go away and do that sometime this week. But Paul says, therefore, as a result of all of this, as a result of all that God has done, of where God has brought you to now, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, because that is your true and responsible worship. So God invites us to celebrate him. But it's not something we do on our own, because this celebrating brings us together, and there's a togetherness about the celebration that God longs for. The promise in Exodus 19 is about a community who worship and celebrate God. You, plural, will be my treasure possession. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's a description that Peter later applies to the church as well. But it's a plural thing that we come together in celebrating God. All through the New Testament letters, there's that emphasis on our coming together to celebrate. And in all of the New Testament letters, we lose it in our English translations about you and yours, where actually most of it is, is plural, not singular. And we tend to apply it just to me, whereas as the letters are written to that congregation to bring us together in celebration. Romans 12 leads on from the invitation to worship to the exercising of the gifts as people meet in worship. And in Ephesians, worship emanates as they gather together. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus. That celebration is something we do corporately. And that raises challenges for us, doesn't it, as we meet Sunday by Sunday. Do we come here as disconnected individuals? Do we stay as disconnected individuals when we meet together to worship and to go through the service? And then do we go home as disconnected individuals at the end? Or as we meet together, does God do that wonderful thing of drawing us together as his people corporately to worship him? When we sing, are we engaging in corporate worship? Or is it between me and my God, and I'm ignoring everybody who's around me? Now, there are all sorts of pros and cons of meeting in the round, and I don't want to discuss those tonight. You can have a discussion at some other stage if you want, but not tonight. But one of the things for me as we meet in the round like this is that we are actually conscious and aware of each other. And I know that there are times when I've been seated some of the, opposite some, some of the students here of an evening service, and it's really encouraged me to worship because I've seen the enthusiasm on their faces as they've worshipped. 
and it's drawn me in to the worship of God. So as we meet together, God builds us up to enable us to worship. And the focus of our worship together is on God. It's not on us. It's on God, not on us. I wonder when you go down to Anil's after the service tonight how you would discuss whether it was a good service. What would you look like for it to be a good service? Is the measure whether you had a particular experience um, or feeling during the service? Was there some ecstatic moment in the service that you met God personally? Was there some point where the endorphins kicked in? I have to admit that for me, that's probably when I hear the top C's and Allegri's Miserere. But I suspect for some of you, it would be more recent worship songs that that happens in. Did you swipe like for the worship songs that were sung? Um, or for the sermon, or for the intercessions, or even maybe for the notices? There's nothing wrong with all of these things because we should expect to meet God in the, in the worship service. But if the focus is in what it's doing for me, you've got it wrong. And I suggest we've actually begun to break the second commandment. One of the songs that we sing is when the music fades, all is swept away and we simply come. Because it's all about you, Jesus. And I love it when we, when we sing that song, because I know the history behind it. It came from a church where there was a, a sense in the congregation that worship had become all about me and what it was doing for me, and they'd lost sight of God. And the worship leaders there, as they wrote that song, turned, the, turned it on its head and said, actually, no, it is all about Jesus. And I just simply come into his presence to worship him. Yes, there may be spin-offs for me, but the focus is on Jesus. The focus is on God who we worship. So let's work together so that our focus as we celebrate is what we're offering to God, not what we're doing, but offering to him. And then celebration as a way of showing homage or respect or reverence. I guess that leads us into words which we would usually associate with worship. Words like awe and adoration. I've been very intrigued as I've read through the Psalms and studied for this particular um, sermon series over these past months. So often the words which we have as worship in our Bibles we tend to sort of reinterpret about things like what we're doing tonight. But so many of them in the underlying Greek or the Hebrew is actually about posture. So one of the most common words for worship is that of bowing, of bowing down. It's about attitude. It's not about the things that we do, but what's going on in our minds and what we're bringing into worship. Now, we don't do much in the way of bowing and scraping today, do we? I mean, I can't see too much of that going on during the state visit this coming week. 
I know when I was installed as an honorary canon at the cathedral, um, two of my friends met me in the South Presbytery afterwards, and, and to greet me as having been made a canon, did the sort of bowing, walking back two steps, and bowing and walking back two steps. And um, it, it, that's about the only sort of bowing and scraping you're likely to see down when it's a mockery of what it's really about. But the idea of paying homage is something that is in our culture, isn't it? Just go to the scene of a terrorist attack two days later, and it's covered in flowers. Go to the scene of a road accident, and people will have laid flowers in homage to the one who's been killed in that road accident. We're called to worship the sovereign Lord and creator of all that is. And that must involve all. We know that in Old Testament times, people were scared about seeing God because they weren't sure, they thought they were going to get zapped completely if they did that. Or even seeing the angel of the Lord. Even that was going to be scary. Now, yes, in Christ, those old barriers have been taken down. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. But there is still that sense of awe and reverence that we bring to worship. The writer to the Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 12 and 13. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly praise his name. And why? That reverence and awe? Because 12.29 in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Now we walk always with that creative tension between the fact that God is both distant and powerful and other. And God is imminent and alongside us and in us by his spirit. But let us never become so over familiar with God that we lose awe and reverence in our worship. As you read through both Old Testament and New, the call to worship with our lips is echoed with a call to worship with our lives. If you like, it's the instructions to follow that you'd have on the wedding invitation or on the invitation to the party. We're to worship in word and deed. See, after that opening in Romans 12 about offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, Paul goes on to talk about sharing in the congregation. He goes on to talk about how we're to show love to our enemies and to those who persecute us. We're to go on to work out what it means to live in disagreement in a congregation. All of that, Paul says, is equally worship. In Colossians, Paul, Paul writes this, and I was very surprised to read this this past week. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. That bit I, I was aware of, but it's what he gives us the reason for it afterwards that shook me. Out of reverence for the Lord. That obedience in the workplace, the way in which we live out our lives from Monday to Friday, with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord, our worship. In those wonderful verses I've just read from Hebrews, they move straight on to say, and by the way, 
do good to all. Don't forget to do good to all. Worship God with reverence and awe. Do not forget to do good to all. Psalmists and the prophets have an oft-repeated challenge they issue to the people. Maybe they're ones that we need to hear too. They praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Back to what Dave was saying earlier about what is it when we come to worship and sing these words? Is it just going through the motions with the words? Or actually, are, we, are our hearts being changed as we focus and celebrate God? So we're called to worship in our lives. So worship, yes, is what we do on Sunday, but worship is also what we do Monday to Saturday as well, in the everyday, in the ordinary. We're called to celebrate God, and we're going to look at that in more detail over the coming weeks as to what that might look like. But celebration is something that God initiates. He's the one who invites us to come and worship. He invites us to join with others in celebrating him. And he says those celebrations, as we focus on him, work out both with our lips as we sing songs of worship and praise, as we read those great psalms ascribing glory to God. But that worship is also worked out in the day-to-day, how we bring reconciliation in our workplace, how we share the redeeming love of God with those around us, how we look to God's justice to drive us out into social action. All of these things we'll look at in more detail, but God is the one who calls us to it. And let's get used to celebrating God. If I read Revelation right, that's what we're all being called to eventually, (laughs) into that place where people are drawn from every tribe and language and nation and brought together for eternity to celebrate God. I think both in word and deed in that new heaven and that new earth. It's a beautiful picture going forward. And I know from worshipping in congregations where people from the five continents have been together as we've worshipped, there's something special about that as we recognize God's love for all. So let's get used to celebrating him. Let's receive and accept his invitation to come and celebrate and to live our lives accordingly. Amen.